the CIA recruiter comes along. And in this case, they were offering summer internship programs where you get hired, you get fully cleared, and you are offered a 90-day contract to work during the summer there. So I applied. I was accepted. I spent 90 days there. But what is really great about this program, and I strongly recommend it to people who are, you know, might be interested in this career, is that you are paid a professional salary and you go into an office and you are given a real task to do. So you can imagine any organization like the CIA has to have a central operations center that is personed 24 hours a day. And so basically, I just sat there as the first line of defense, and this is 1978. Carmen Medina is a former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence, a veteran of the intelligence community. She's also the author of Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. Puerto Rican-born to a fun-loving father and an achievement-driven mother, Carmen excelled through an itinerant childhood to lead her school debating teams. Her forensic debating skills and serendipity led her to a university scholarship and ultimately set her on her path to a 32-year career in the CIA. This is a two-parter. In part one, Carmen unpacks her chaotic and unsettled upbringing in childhood and the role of her education and how debating helped her develop the skills that served her well over her career in the CIA. We discuss her experience of interning at the CIA in 1978, a time before desktop computers, operating as a human algorithm, to running the South African desk and leaning into the male-dominated CIA culture to make her voice heard. In part two, we discuss her perspective on power, the current state of the world and her hope for the future. We also cover the role of curiosity and creativity in her work at the CIA, applying empathy to be heard by policy and decision makers in today's polarised political environment. And finally, we end with her life insights as she answers our quickfire questions. I hope you enjoy this refreshing and fun episode and learn from the kindness, reflective wisdom and optimism of Carmen Medina. Carmen, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Mark, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming all the way to New York and it's great to finally sit down face to face. So I appreciate it. I have to say thank you very much. I'd acknowledge Manish Walter-Puri for mm. connecting us. I think it's great Manish for him. Manish is so great. Big, big shout out to Manish. As we say to all our guests, before we discuss their life journey and their area of focus, in your case, the intelligence community and consulting, we'd like to understand more about your childhood. From what I've read and what I've watched, you were born in Puerto Rico, brought up in Texas, and you lived a rather itinerant life as a child, moving pretty much every two years. Actually, very similar to myself. My father was in the Navy. Oh, and I know exactly excellent. the feeling of going yes. to multiple schools right. and the impact it right. has on someone's upbringing. But in your case, your father was an army sergeant, a uh, father that traveled to new locations. How did that itinerant life prepare you for the life that you, that you led, ultimately in an organization like the CIA? Right. You know, when you're a kid, you don't really know anything different. So you don't have a context in which to put in your life. So at the time, I didn't think much about my life being unusual. But when I grew up and I realized that the idea of change didn't scare me and that the idea of change just seemed to be the natural order of things, I realized that it was my childhood Mm -hmm. moving all the time, every two years, sometimes more frequently, as you said, Uh, moving 
between cultures. So I was born in Puerto Rico. Spanish is the first language that I spoke, but by the time I'm two and a half, I'm in Oklahoma and having to learn English. And then I go back to Puerto Rico where I start to learn to read in Spanish and then I move back and learn to read in English. So that, I think, had to have wired my brain in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Some, I think, intuitive or, or innate understanding that there are many worlds in the world and that you can have a totally different natural order from one place to the next. Mm -hmm. And so my experience was that I had to adapt to that. So I think that, I think my personal comfort level with change and different cultures definitely stems from my childhood. Reflecting on my own experience and going to different schools, I didn't have the, the richness of cultural variety that maybe you had, but the, the natural state is change but the experience of going into the unknown and that unknown or ambiguity becoming something that you have to take comfort in is just something that it was hard to begin with. But by the time you've gone through two or three moves and new schools, it becomes just a de facto standard. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's it is an ambiguity. And as we're talking, I'm reflecting on one of the most extreme moves I ever made when I was seven. I was we were living in Alaska. Fairbanks, Alaska, like the really cold part of it. And we moved to back to Puerto Rico. Quite right. And too. <laughs> my parents decided to drive from Fairbanks, Alaska wow. to New York, New York over Christmas. We arrived in New York City on New Year's Eve. I I have, as you can imagine, vivid but spotty memories of that adventure. But if you think about now I'm thinking about what it would have meant to me to go from Fairbanks, Alaska mm -hmm. to Puerto Rico and drive like that's, over half of the way yeah. to New York City. That's a really strange experience. I don't, I don't really think too many people have had it. How old were you? I was seven. Wow, that must have been quite an experience. Right, and yeah. there were all kinds of goofy things. My, you know, This is way before TripAdvisor. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of goofy things my parents didn't think about, like there are no hotels opened uh -huh. in the Yukon in the dead of winter, so where yeah. do you stay? One of my life goals is to redo the trip because mm -hmm. I would just like to see if any I get any flashbacks, you know. I'll bet you would. And I think it took, I think we left December 15th and we arrived. So it took us 16 days. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, we, we came down the spine of the Rockies, on the other side of the Rockies and break into Montana. And that was, the, that was when we hit a blizzard. Mm -hmm. Why did they choose to drive? Was my, it? I asked my mother that, and she hated to fly. Ah. And I think also by driving, they got their car you know, shipped yeah. to Puerto Rico mm -hmm. more quickly. They were driving the car directly to the shipment area, New York City. Mm -hmm. Well, let us know if you're going to do it again. Uh, let's see. <laughs> it. I'll post it on Instagram. Yeah, it would, it, would be, uh, it, it would be, be fun. Yeah. Great one to document. So that experience of embracing change, it prepared you for your life. What about other elements of your parental support, the guidance and the direction? What impact did that have on the direction that you took? Well, I, you know, I, I had a chaotic childhood because, not only because of the constant moving, but because my father and my mother just fought all the time. And I have many memories of my mom being overwrought and emotional and threatening to kill herself and my father at his wits ends. 
And during most of our time, my grandmother, my mother's mother, lived with us because my grandmother never married, you see. And so my mother was very devoted to her, and that's a whole other can of worms. And my grandmother was a huge support system for me. And I think there is actually some literature and research about children who have close relations with grandparents when they're growing up Mm -hmm. and how that is thought to be a a positive thing. And my grandmother was the rock of Gibraltar in our family. My father and mother fought and my father drank too much. My mother is overwrought and very emotional. And my grandmother was the steady Eddie who kept things going. Mm. My mother, highly achievement-oriented. You know, there's a lot of psychological material in my mom, and and she's still alive. She, but she was very achievement-oriented. I think part of that was because she was illegitimate mm-hmm. in Puerto Rican society in the 1930s, uh. and had a chip on on her shoulder, <laughs> as you can imagine. So achievement was a very important thing for her. My father was a hail fellow well met. I think that's the expression. Mm -hmm. You know, the life of the party, gregarious, outgoing, not particularly achievement-oriented. He never got beyond just a staff sergeant Mm -hmm. in the Army, four stripes, which I know just, you know, just made my mother so frustrated. Do you think he could have gone further? Oh, he was a very intelligent man. He had a hell of a lot of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So he could have. And a a, a great contrast between my mother and my father is when my father retires at 20 years, he has benefits to go to school. So he tried to go to college. And after about three days, he just said, this is not for me. My mother, in her 40s, went to college and got her degree in a bachelor's of science in accounting, a, a business in accounting. And so that is, that's, that says it all. Yeah. My mother was, and my father, my mother remembers my father saying to her, oh, you're never going to do it. It's way too hard. It's just too hard to be with those kids. And my mother, well, she was full steam ahead. Mm-hmm. So I got to get to your question. I got a lot of um, sense of the importance of achievement from my mother. And when I was young, I was very sympathetic to my mother. As I've gotten older, I've become more sympathetic and more appreciative of of what my father brought to the equation, which was this idea that life should be fun and we should have a good time in life. And then throughout it all, kind of the basso ostinato of that whole thing was my grandmother, that consistent baseline of taking care of people, you know, importance of re- of maintaining a firm foundation and some sense of stability in did the you home. See much, did you see much of her, though, if you were traveling every t- couple of years? Well, she, you... she came with us. Oh, she did. She, she was traveled part of the package. with us everywhere but Alaska. The only <clears throat> place she did not go was Alaska. But every other place, oh, she, was she may not have gone to Oklahoma, mm-hmm. So, but, but every other destination. So she was always with oh, that's us. That's interesting. She was a really spectacular mm-hmm. uh, person, I thought. So what, what was it? I mean, do you have siblings? I have a brother a who's brother. Uh, younger. Yeah. Uh-huh. And was he 
Are we close in age? Four years younger. So we were we were we were close when we were young, and I, of course, with four years seniority on him, I bossed him around mm. a lot. And but we were close. Uh, and so, at what point did you start to get a sense of the direction you were going to go in life? Wow. Were you, were you an ambitious child? Was I an ambitious child? I was a smart child. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, in, as soon as I started going to school, yeah, you was I was doing, you know, I did well. Uh-huh. I did better than than the peer group. Uh-huh. And uh, that's often hard for children. Certainly, I struggled moving schools because I was moving curriculum uh, right. each time for Scottish and English, quite different systems, and also your the disruption of new teachers. That's that's hard. So. Often children struggle in those instances. You obviously embraced it. Right. I mean, I have to tell you a funny story. You've made me think of this. So one of the things that happened is I would have to switch from learning in Spanish to learning in English. Mm. And I remember, I think I was in Georgia at the time in first grade. And I had to relearn how to read in English. And I was... I think I was, well, let's just say the evidence is clear that even by the age of six, I was achievement oriented. Mm -hmm. And I could tell that the kids were reading these symbols on a page and that that particular set of symbols was thank you. And you know, this is an early reader, Dick and Jane, so there's a lot of repetition. And, but what what I was mistaken about, I thought that the word that I now know as T-H-A-N-K, that that entire word was thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I had no real phonetic concept. Mm-hmm. And then there, there happened to be an extra U because I recognized Y-O-U as U. So I thought, oh, I can read this. So I raised my hand to, to volunteer to read and the teacher picked me out. There's the scene where Dick or Jane are thanking their parents for the gifts they got. And it's like, thank you, you, mom. Thank you, you, Dad. <laughs> Thank you, you, Grandmother. And they, I was corrected. But that tells you, I think, right there, that I'm that I'm achievement oriented. I and confi- want and confident uh, and confident, yeah. un, un, uh, overconfident. I wanted to achieve mm-hmm. something, and so, but I don't think I reflected on that in, in any significant way. So I don't really think I had a sense that I could do more mm. until I was in high school. And I started to debate in high school to do forensics. And I, I was good at that. And it's interesting, why did I get into forensics? Well, I was going to say, because yeah. I've, I've heard you say that you developed a skill for critical thinking at high school yeah. as a debater. But I right. wondered, what was it that prompted you to go into that, that well, society? Well, in, in Texas, I was living in El Paso, Texas at the time. And the uh, middle school went to eighth grade. And my one of my eighth grade teachers, Mrs. Bunsen, whom I do not otherwise did not like a lot but she pulled me aside because I was about to go to high school and she says Carmen you have a lot of potential but you're a native Spanish speaker and you speak too fast and too loud which is a characteristic Mm -hmm. of native Spanish speakers when they speak English and in fact Puerto Ricans are particularly known for speaking fast and loud it's a not a cultural or ethnic stereotype it, it's it's actually it's a reality, reality, reality right and so she said so you need to correct that and when, so when you go to high school take speech uh-huh. and so 
I did. And I, you know, not only did it help, but I actually found that I enjoyed it and had a talent for it. And so uh, that's how I got into that. You use the word forensic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've met other people that were in debating societies and done similar things, but no one's used that term. But you used the word forensic in those questions you sent me. Yeah, I did, but but I saw you mention it in a previous But I do use forensics, yes. Yeah, uh Yeah. So why... Is that something that's common within debating, that the use of that term, or is it something that is specific to you? No, no, I think it's common. I think uh-huh. when you would go to tournaments, to competitions uh-huh. in high school or college, particularly in high school, though, it, the competitions were divided into forensics and drama. So the drama, people would do monologues or duet oh, acting. I see, right, okay. Read poetry. Uh-huh. And then the speech people or the forensics people were doing persuasive speaking and oratory Mm -hmm. and debate. Mm. I I really do think that our education systems just don't do a good enough job of helping people learn how to think better. Uh And, of course, in our current environment, that's critical. That's definitely what we need. Yes, that's exactly. More than ever. Yes, Okay, so to your education, through that skill, debating skill that you developed at at school, you became the first family member to go to a university. That's I true, yes. And that was the Catholic University of America. I actually started in Texas. Ah, right. So nobody in my family had gone to college. My father just did not understand why a woman in 1972 needed to go to college. He had no concept of it. I mean, I, I could... He, he, he I, probably was in this other, uh, wasn't the only one no, <laughs> thinking that I, at that time. He, There's probably I, a fair number still think that. Yeah, I could hear my parents argue about this and or overhear them. What did he expect you to do? Get, get married, mm-hmm. like everybody else. Get married, have children, and there's a long line. I mean, my mother was 18 when she had me, or maybe had just turned 19, and there's a long line of relatives that we have who've, you know, become grandmothers at, in, in their late 30s or early 40s. So there's a lot of fertility, <laughs> youthful fertility in, in the family circles that we were in. So I think my, da- my dad had no other concept for what a woman did. And I don't know, he resented or it made him insecure that I was so interested in education mm-hmm. and learning. So I started off in Texas and- To study what? Well, at the time I had no, I had no real idea, no help from my parents on that. My teachers in high school were very eager for me to go to college. And my grades and my scores were high enough that at, I started off at Texas Tech, which is a a very large and very good state school in Texas. And they had an honors program mm. where you could, your first year was a kind of a world civilization seminar. And so I, I did the honors program for the first year and then I debated. And I loved the honors program. I got introduced to things that still fascinate me to this day, philosophy. I'm very much interested in philosophy. And I, then I dropped out of Texas Tech 
early in my third semester, and it was, you know, stupid romance issue, which now just seems like ridiculous. But it's still a very important experience. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going back to El Paso, where my family was, went to school at UTEP. And then that summer, University of Texas at El Paso, that summer, the debate coach at Catholic University had heard me debate at a tournament a year earlier. Mm -hmm. And he actually had 10 full tuition debate scholarships to offer people. Wow. And That's one of, it was incredible. I mean, truly, mm. this is like the, the, the finger of God or fate coming and saying, you. Mm -hmm. And he called me. I remember I was taking my finals in one of the classes I was taking at the UTEP during summer school. And the professor pulls me out of the class and says, Carmen, there's this man from Catholic University in Washington, D.C. who's trying to reach you. And he's called here, yeah. and this is the number you have to call him back. He's offering you a scholarship to go to school there. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, you hear about the stories like that for college football players or for basketball I know. players. It's weird, isn't it? Being yeah. sort of spotted yeah. by the scouts. But I didn't realize there was yeah. scouting for debaters. Yeah, so he had lost one of his high school recruits mm -hmm. had decided to go somewhere else. So he had to find someone, you know, quickly who could transfer. Pretty serendipitous, I think. And that was me. And so I, I talked to him. And then I looked up Catholic University. And this was what, during one of the periods where my mom and my dad had separated. Because this was a common occurrence. They would separate for a month and then they would get back together again. And so I had to, so as a result, we were particularly poor. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out how the heck I was going to get myself to Washington, D.C., but I did. And if not for that, I would never, I'm sure, have come to Washington, D.C. And I'm not sure what I would have done in Texas. You know, I might have become a teacher, which is something I always wanted to do. Or I might have gone ahead and become a lawyer mm -hmm. because that, you know, when you're a debater, you sort of naturally fall into this, the law profession. So you, you did follow that route, I believe, mm -hmm. at some point. You, you, started, you started in law, but then you moved into a more generalist degree at Georgetown. That's right. Well, what happened was I, at, at Catholic University has a law school. Mm -hmm. And so we were on campus together, and I started meeting law school students. And I decided I did not want to be like them. I, I, I mean, this is grossly, this is truly grossly stereotypical. Mm. But I thought they were arrogant and full of themselves and way too serious, uh -huh. just way too serious. And so then I'm in my last year at Catholic, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to go to law school, so what the heck am I going to do? And the only other thing I was interested in was the world, mm -hmm. which, of course, when you think about it, is a weird thing to say. Yeah, but given your upbringing, your, your exposure to different cultures yes, and I, that first class you did. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, the, the honors program, <clears throat> right. Mm -hmm. So Georgetown, Masters of uh, Foreign Service program was there, and so... I, when you were looking at that, did anyone ever say, oh, yeah, that's a great pathway to the CIA? No. 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 Well, I <laughs> had no. Because when you say the, the lawyers were quite serious and, and full of themselves, 
You know, the CIA isn't exactly known for its sense of humor. Right. That's true. It I'm, is I'm not known <laughs> for its sense of humor, although I helped in that regard. And we can talk about that later. So I, I got accepted into Georgetown. And the very first semester that I'm there, the CIA recruiter comes along because Georgetown was one of the schools that they you know, visited on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they were offering... Uh, summer internship programs where you get hired, you get fully cleared, and you are offered a 90-day contract to work during the summer there. So I, I applied. I was accepted. I spent 90 days there. And at the end of it, they said, well, we like you. Would you agree to just come on full time? Mm-hmm. You know, totally professional capacity. And since the reason why I was going to Georgetown was to get a job in a field like this, I had been thinking foreign service, not the CIA. Mm -hmm. So something like the State Department. Yeah, something like the State Department. But they, you know, so I said, of course, I I did it. And that was all the thinking that I made about a CIA career. Wow. What what does someone as an intern at CIA do? Well, it depends upon where you get picked up. But what is really great about this program, and I strongly recommend it to people who are, you know, might be interested in this career, is that you are paid a professional salary and you go into an office and depending upon how well that office is managed, you are given a real task to do. And in my case, and that when I think about it, it's just so odd. I would directly into the 24-hour watch office. So you can imagine any organization like the CIA mm-hmm. has to have a central operations center that is personed 24 hours a day. And so that's where I, I, I came in. And so basically, I just sat there as the first line of defense, and this is 1978. This mm-hmm. is before desktop computers. So you have what are essentially teletype machines mm-hmm. that are like the old movies, constantly spewing out reams of paper with text on them. Uh-huh. Being delivered from what? From the field? From, from the field, from embassies, mm-hmm. from Isn't from like- new, ser- new services, from you know NSA material, all the different types of ints, mm-hmm. as we talk about in our business. And so somebody had to read them all the time. And, then, and, and if you think about it, the analysts, the professional analysts who were working in the building, they didn't have computers on their desk then. And so what our job was to, to be that first filter, the first screen, and decide if anything we had read warranted immediate attention. Mm -hmm. And if it warranted immediate attention, then we, during the day, would just call the the officer and say, hey, this is something really interesting on Rhodesia that has just been reported. Maybe you want to look at it Mm -hmm. right away. Otherwise, they would have to wait until the mailroom grabbed all these things and did their circuit around the building and delivered material. God, it would be really interesting if you were the, what did you call yourself, the, the role that you were It playing? was called a watch officer. So it would be really interesting if you, were, if you were the watch officer 
And you didn't pick up on the storming of the embassy in Tehran back oh, in 17. I, I, be, <laughs> I worked that night, actually. Yeah, you were there. Oh, I wow. worked, well, let me think. I, the embassy was stormed more than once. So I worked on one of the nights mm -hmm. that the embassy was stormed. And uh, so it was fascinating. I mean, there were some really interesting things that happened when I was on the watch at CIA. And I did that as my first job there for just a little over a year. Yeah, that's, it's so all, about it's, October of 1979. It's funny when you think about it. It's like, um, trying to put it in the, in the context of Google search, mm. it's almost like you're creating, you're looking, you're the algorithm that's bubbling up what's relevant. That's right. And, I was thinking the exact human. same thing. As I was telling you the story, I was thinking, well, it was like I was operating as the Google search engine, and yeah. I and what I had learned and what's about delivered importance. to the first page yes. for all the analysts for to all then the review and make a I decision. I was the algorithm, yeah. uh -huh. right? Yes, human algorithms. That's great. Also, just to go off a slight tangent. That great movie that came out a couple of years ago about with. Ben Affleck, where the storming of the embassy. Argo, went. yes. Argo. Well, you must have been at the CIA when Argo all happened. Yes, but I was just a little like a tight, yeah, right? I'm, I'm but probably not uh, aware of but what I, was I, I loved that movie, and at the, t the same year, 20, what was that? Uh, Zero Dark Thirty came out, mm -hmm. and Argo. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I did not rec one. I thought Zero Dark Thirty, in many ways, was comical in in all the mistakes that it made, in just how it represented the work of intelligence organizations. But I would also say that Argo is the CIA I remember. Kind of well-intentioned, but often clueless or, <laughs> or feckless or overly ambitious, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, that, that's, for the most part, I would say 85% of the CIA I experienced and knew mm -hmm. was Argo or or. or captured by Argo. Yes. The, there is a 10 to 15%, I'd say, that is darker, badly intentioned, perhaps, mm -hmm. or that represents you know, a level of ignorance that you just should not excuse. We should not, in professional organizations, have that level of, ig of ignorance. But it probably exists in every organization. Of course it's it does. It's probably just a standard. Right, I mean, let's look at operating. an example of it right now, the Boeing yeah, and the seven thirty seven outrageous yeah. Max episode, which I you know follow pretty closely because I'm, you know, just interested in that concatenation of circumstances mm -hmm. that leads to bad outcomes. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, let, let's get back into the the track of the where you, you your journey into the CIA. So you you dive straight in. You you left university. And you started out as this human algorithm. Yes. Um, <laughs> and once you actually went full time, did your role change? I stayed as a human algorithm for oh, yeah. a little of, over a year. And what happens when you're in that job, if you show some promise, if you do it well, then uh, the professionals notice you. Uh -huh. And so and they're always looking to hire known talent as opposed to recruiting someone from outside. So I was hired by the Africa Division mm -hmm. to work on what ended up being uh, Southern Africa, mostly South Africa. And Interesting place at the time. It was fan apartheid. fantastic, yes, with apartheid. And, uh, I mean, Rhodesia was transitioning to Zimbabwe. Yes. That was going through sort of right. a lot of turmoil. There was right. war and that coming right. out of Angola. Yes. So all, those are all the issues I worked on. And uh, I mostly worked on South Africa. I actually started on Botswana. 
Swaziland and Lesotho, mm -hmm. a little junior account. But then I worked on South Africa, and it's remained a kind of a love. I worked on it twice. I, I worked on it till 1982. Then I left to work on the Middle East. And then I came back in 1985 and worked on South Africa again for another three years. Did, did they ever let you go into the field? We would travel. They would be like orientation trips. So we would travel. And when you traveled, did the South Africans know? Did they know CIA were coming into the country? Or were you going in under a, a, a Well, you know, that is a visa? sensitive operational question. Mm -hmm. And so I will say that we travel under, we don't, well, obviously we don't travel as CIA officers, yeah. but the various countries that we travel to have varying abilities mm. to figure out if who's we, who. who's who, <laughs> and that, I'll leave yeah. it at that. Interesting. Yeah. Movie, movie producers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a great country. I, I've done a couple of shoots there and had some great adventures in South Africa. Well, w one of my favorite times uh, is I ended up in Chobe Game Reserve in Botswana, which is right on the border there with what is now Zimbabwe. And we visited the old Chobe Lodge, which had been closed down in 1979 when I think it was ZANU decide, started shooting down Air Rhodesia planes. Mm -hmm. ZANU PF? ZANU PF. The political party yeah. that was the insurgents. Yes. Were got, there was ZAPU and ZANU, and I think it was ZANU that. Yeah. Uh, uh, shot down the plane. So anyway, the Chobe Game Lodge, which is where the Rhodesians like to visit, was like shut down in a day. So we visited it like 1991. I was with someone who was thinking of reopening it. This is after the settlement in Rhodesia. And it was fantastic because you walked into this hotel and, you know, there were still place settings on the table. They still had the today's exchange rate posted you got this sense of what had happened there, that everyone had panicked and just said, let us get yeah, out of okay. here as quickly as we can. And the whole place had this Planet of the Apes atmosphere. So even though it was locked up and there was a caretaker, the building itself had just been colonized. The outside of it had been colonized by monkeys and baboons. Wow. So I have this vivid memory of driving up to it at sunset, you know, so with beautiful light. And looking at this set of, you know, colonial hotel buildings colonized by baboons and monkeys and thinking, well, this means something yeah. significant, right? I this is a significant image of my life. It's uh, <laughs> one of those times you look back and think, if only there were mobile phones and yes. we had camera phones then. If only I could have taken that picture. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your ex early experience in the CIA, living that sort of itinerant life as a, as a child and a student and then going into someone like the CIA there you must have been a bit of an outlier there one you were Puerto Rican you were a woman you hadn't completed your Georgetown degree in what I can imagine wasn't the particularly diverse organization at the time how did you find your feet and your find your voice in well, a place like that it must be very male dominated yeah as as is often the case when you're asked a question like that how did you find your feet you don't really have at least i don't have a memory of having to find my feet you know i don't have i don't remember asking myself that question mm -hmm. yes it was very male dominated I think there were, in the group that I started off with, Africa Division, there were two other women working there. 
and they were much older. They were in their 50s, I would say. And so I was maybe 23 or 24. And because they were in their 50s, because they had, for however they got there, worked there during this period, they had gotten pigeonholed in, in a particular category. And I remember, I do remember thinking, well, I don't want to be pigeonholed in that, whatever that category is that they're in, which now I sort of recognize as kind of token woman mm -hmm. category. I am, I'm going to be one of the boys. I'm going to be just as good and, and you know, considered in the same way, mm. capable of doing all the same things. One of the women, in, for example, I remember was highly emotional. I mean, reflecting back on, on her now, I, I wonder whether or not she had actually some diagnosable mental health problems, mm -hmm. highly emotional. And of course, as far as all the men in that office was, were concerned, having her, the fact that she was a highly emotional woman was sort of convenient for them. It kind of helped you know she was pigeonholing herself yeah. basically by by being that way so mostly men mostly men you know wearing white shirts and suits it's one of the interesting things that isn't i think commented on too often about women in professional workplaces that it's very difficult for women to present themselves or to convey the same image in the workforce as the men. The men have like a uniform. They wear a white shirt and a tie and a suit jacket. And, and during my professional career, during, you know, from the 70s to the aughts, that, that time, that was a period when women were entering the workforce in, a, in meaningful numbers and at the same time grappling with how to present themselves as an image in the workforce. So you went through the period where, I remember this very well in the 80s, where the women were wearing the little bow ties and the padded shoulders, which seems to be a real attempt to mimic what men do. Mm -hmm. And then women you know, wore suits. And I think today now I've been reading women are more into wearing dresses or, you know, and then of course this whole conversation about what men should wear and women, which I just find it tiresome. But it was very much the case that, you know, you as a woman just didn't really know how to present yourself in in the workplace. Um, and the men were clubby. And luckily, I became a favorite of, of the boss of the group, Tom Duffy, a wonderful man who's a mentor who's passed on. And he very early on started to include me in the clubby things that the men did. For example, to go out to lunch and drink way too much beer. It's uh, not really an image you have of the CIA. No, <laughs> no. Well, you know, they had, at the time, There's the, the town of McLean is three miles from mm -hmm. CIA. So it's very easy to go there for lunch. And they had a couple of hangouts that they would go to. And one of them was called O'Toole's which was, doesn't exist anymore, but I think was run by an ex-CIA guy. And, you know, there was no menu. All you could have was just a, it was like a cheeseburger and a pitcher of beer. And I do have the memory of thinking, okay, I've, I'm being invited to do this and have lunch with the cool kids. And I should do this, that mm -hmm. this is a good thing for me to do. This is a plus. 
you know, the other two women were never invited to do this. But the fact that they were inviting me, I should do this. And the other thing I will say uh, on this topic, and I, I make this comment a lot when I talk, and I always say what I'm about to say is not accurate, but it's nevertheless truthful. It represents truth. I like to say that I would, at lunchtime, I would wander the halls of CIA looking for the other brown person that I had been told <laughs> worked there. Now, I, I didn't actually do that, but that captures what the yeah, environment was imagine. like. Mm. One, one more story. Uh, early on in the early 80s, I took a training course on how to be an intelligence analyst and the I was sitting there, and I'm, I'm shy. I, I don't, I'm not extroverted. So I was just sitting there quietly waiting for class to begin, and one of the instructors came up to be an older man, and I could tell that he was trying to be friendly and welcoming. So he sits down next to me, and he goes, what's your name? And I go, Carmen. And then his next sentence is, I love Mexican food. Well, <laughs> I'm not Mexican, you know, <laughs> I'm not Mexican. <laughs> And I would great, you know. Good, yeah. But I got uh, a penchant for Lebanese. Thanks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I knew what I know what he was trying to do, so I yeah. I appreciate that he took that step. But it still amused me. Carmen, I think we're just going to leave part one there. We'll come back in part two. In part two, we discuss her perspective on power, the current state of the world, and her hope for the future. We also cover the role of curiosity and creativity in her work at the CIA, applying empathy to be heard by policy and decision makers in today's polarised political environment. And finally, we end with her life insights as she answers our quickfire questions. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.